Thanks, Brian. I want to mention a couple of opportunities to pray. One is this Tuesday. We're going to have our monthly prayer night. We'll meet in the south end of the building. So it's just a time just for faith to come pray with others and for others. You might have a specific need and you just say, I just need somebody to pray for me. And so some of our elders will be here, be there that night. And so... um, Please come Tuesday at uh, 7 o'clock for about an hour. And then a week from today at 6 o'clock, we have our uh, quarterly citywide prayer gathering. It's going to be at UCC, University Christian, and uh, it will be at 6 o'clock. And so there's about 20 churches that are committed to praying for revival in the church and redemption in the city. And so uh, next to, next Sunday at, at 6 o'clock. And so come to that if you can. We're excited about one in April. We're going to uh, have it on the K-State campus. So we hope to have about two, 300 ch- church people show up and just a mob of students and faculty and staff and international students. And so uh, you'll hear more about that. Well, this morning we begin a five-week sermon series on the topic of work. And work is the main thing that you do every week, whether you get paid for it or not. And so work is a very broad, wide-ranging category, and it includes a wide variety of topics and issues, and so it's rather complex. Let me give you some examples. So where we work varies wildly. Some of you go, some of you work in your home. Uh, Some of you work at the same office or the same uh, shop or the same building every single day. Others of you work in many different places, job sites. Some of you travel to different cities for your work. Some of you travel, travel to other countries for your work. The type of work that people here do varies wildly. Uh, Some of you do intellectual work. You you work mostly with ideas and concepts. Uh, My my younger brother's an example of that. He's a math professor at a small uh, liberal arts college up near Boston. And uh, I took a lot of math in in college, but I can't for the life of me understand what he does. He tries to explain, he says it has has no real life application yet. But it just purely is an intellectual job. He works with his mind, ideas. Uh, Other types of work are more physical. It's not to imply that if you have a physical job that you don't use your mind because chances are you need very sharp thinking, very clear thinking. You need to use your creativity. Uh, You need to solve problems. And so it's not to imply it's not also intellectual, but you work with things, objects. You build things, you fix things, you move things. And so that would be careers like uh, landscapers, artists, factory workers, mechanics, and so on. Our work satisfaction really varies, right? Uh, A few of you would say, I have my dream job. I love going to work every day. And if that's you, you are a very small minority fraction of people who've ever lived, seriously. Uh, A lot of people would say, I don't love what I do but I need to work. I need to eat. Uh, Subsistence living has been kind of the norm down through the centuries. Most people who've ever lived, uh, you know, they're not working to be fulfilled and do what they were born to do. They they work because they need to earn money to eat. Uh, Our stage of life and therefore our stage of career varies. Uh, Some of you are are right in the thick of your career. I mean, you're at the, the prime of your career whatever your work is. Others of you are on one end of the spectrum, you're retired, and so you no longer have a set thing that you have to do. 
every week, but you have a lot of discretionary time, how you spend your time. Uh, some of you are retired and you're pretty much every bit as busy and occupied doing meaningful things now as you were when you earned a paycheck. And so you volunteer and you, you invest yourself in relationships and uh, organizations and, and other meaningful things. Others of you on the other end of the spectrum, you're trying to decide what type of work you're going to do when you get older. Or maybe you're in school and you're preparing for your career. And so there's, there's a wide spectrum there. The demands of our work varies wildly. Some of you have relentless work demands. One person in first service got called out in the middle of worship for work, something he, he had, had to go do. Um, my wife spent 15 years of her life uh, raising our children. And uh, I remember I would come home and I would just be impressed every day. What I do as a pastor is a lot easier than what she did every day raising those kids. I could leave work, go home, hopefully make the transition. 20, for her, it was 24-7. And so some of you have very demanding jobs. Others of you, you'd say, no, you know, when I leave work, I really leave it at work. And so the list could go on and on, but I mention all this just to acknowledge the complexity of what we're going to be talking about during this series, and also just to, to say that some of the examples and some of the illustrations that we use won't be especially relevant to you, okay? In my mind, that's okay too, because the goal is not just for you to think about your work. We would like for, for us all to learn how to think about others' work and to, to bring compassion and curiosity, engagement to the work of others. So this morning we begin this series by looking at work from the perspective of the drama of Scripture. And if you were with us last fall, we spent eight weeks on this. And you'll remember that we can, can basically summarize the drama of Scripture or the plot of the Bible with four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation describes God's design, the way things ought to be. Uh, the fall describes the way the world actually is due to sin and its, its pervasive effect in, in everyone and everything. Uh, redemption is, is how the world can be, how life can be in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then restoration uh, describes what the world will be like when God remakes everything, the new heaven, the new earth, when all things are made new. And so hopefully today's message will establish some foundational pr uh, perspectives and will give a grid for thinking about uh, your work and the work of others. And so we begin with creation. And the, the uh, salient point there is that God created us to do meaningful work. God created humanity to work, to be productive and, and uh, accomplish things. And so I want us to notice from the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 that God had meaningful work for Adam to do before the fall. It's always been part of God's original design. From the beginning, God designed us to be creative and productive. And so in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, sometimes this is called the creation mandate, but uh, God, God created humanity in his image and gave us responsibility over the rest of creation. And so this is what we read. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so he didn't give the, an analogous command to the, the beasts of the field and the fish of the seas. This is unique to humanity. He said, subdue the earth, or the ESV translates it, exercise dominion over the earth. And this reflects the, the, the worldview that God is the king, he's the creator, uh, he is the sovereign over everything, and that humanity would, would uh, comprise his royal stewards. We have responsibility to rule over his good creation in ways that are compatible with him and his purposes. And so the original vision was to start with Eden, and that's where God dwelt among his people, and to expand it to include the entire earth. They were to be fruitful and multiply, and as they did, they were to, to subdue or exercise dominion over the entire earth. And so this is a real important point to get. It's important in just in our lives in general. It's important in, in walking with God. But God from the very beginning has a bias for collaboration and participation. Okay, God could just do everything and we just have to, you know, just fall in line. But he has this bias for collaboration. It's true in the unseen heavenly realm. You see it in Job 1. You see it in 1 Kings 22. God has a heavenly council, and he collaborates. There's conversation, and there are decisions that are made. In the same way, his, his family on earth, his participation, collaboration. And so he's given us this assignment. God created the world good, but he wants us to exercise this dominion over the rest of the, the world. And so God could have created in such a way that, that we would not have a single thing to do, a single thing to accomplish. He could have created this earth in such a way that it did not need care and cultivation, stewardship, but he didn't. When he created us in his image, he gave us the desire and the ability to do meaningful work. We see something similar in the, the complementary creation account in Genesis 2. In verse 15, we read this about the assignment that God gave the man. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. We were not designed to be idle and unproductive. That is not God's design. Work is not a necessary evil. It's an expression of being made in the image of God. And so think about the creation count. For six days, God worked. And what did he do when he worked on those six days? Well, it started out formless and void. He created spaces, and then he populated them. And then on the seventh day, he rested. That's basically what God is telling humanity to do. Being created in God's image, we continue to bring order to the created world. And so think about the fourth commandment in Genesis 20. We're not only commanded to rest on the seventh day, what else are we commanded? Six days you shall work, and then you rest on the seventh day. So that pattern is a way that we imitate God because he worked six days and then rested. And man's first work primarily involved agriculture. He was put in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and that word can be translated serve, cultivate, work, or even worship. But, but this is an important point. Adam was to take the raw materials of the garden and improve it to make it even more beautiful and more productive. And so isn't it interesting that before the fall, in its pristine condition, the garden 
still needed to be cultivated. It still needed to be worked. Even though creation was pronounced very good, there was a role for man to develop and improve it. And so in fellowship with God, this would be a delightful work. Created in God's image, he could use his creativity, his imagination for agriculture, landscaping, artistic expression, etc. And so this is a foundational verse that, that establishes the goodness of work. In a couple minutes, we're going to notice how the fall affects our work. But we need to understand and believe that God has created us to work, that he has created us to co-labor with him. We do need rest, okay? We need days off. We need Sabbath. Uh, we need vacation. Sometimes we need sabbaticals. And so, so that's a given. But the ideal for humanity is not to be idle and unproductive, okay? That is not the ideal for your life, to be idle and unproductive and do nothing, okay? Sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we need a break, but that's not the ideal. And that's one of the reasons why uh, unemployment or underemployment is such a, a painful thing for people, or why if you're disabled and you're not able to work, why it's such a painful thing. And it's not just the, the stress of not having a paycheck. It's the frustration of not being able to use this God-given desire to be productive and to contribute to the common good and help the, the flourishing of our city. And so one aspect of being created in the image of God involves this desire and, to, and ability to make positive contributions to the work around us. So that's creation. What about the fall? Well, kind of simply put, workers are sinful and work is toilsome. And so now work is often a four-letter word, right? It's just not, not a good thing. In the garden, God had abundantly supplied this food to eat. He blessed the ground, and it, it just naturally produced food for the taking. And so uh, that changed after Adam and Eve's sin. And sin had this pervasive effect on God's good creation. And so just as the woman was, was, uh, would have now have pain in childbirth, um, the man would experience hardship in cultivating the ground. This is what we read in Genesis 3. Then to Adam, he, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so after the fall, the, the earth would grudgingly give up its produce. Uh, weeds, thorns, and thistles uh, would frustrate him in this work of, of, of cultivating the ground. And consequently, producing food, producing bread would be this hard, sweaty process until the day that he died. And so by implication, all of work would be toilsome. In Romans 8, Paul reflected on this very passage on the, the curse that was put on the ground, on creation. And there he declares that creation was subjected to futility. He said it is now enslaved to corruption. And that doesn't imply that creation is now sinful, but creation does experience the effects of humanity's 
sin. And so creation, what it is presently, it's not what it once was, and it is not what it will be when all things are made new. And so instead of being a joyful collaboration between God and his people, work is now full of strife and frustration. After the fall, workers are sinful and work becomes toilsome. And if, we, if I just handed you a card and said, write down the, how you've seen this illustrated in work, oh my, the, the things that you could share with me. Uh, let me just give you a few examples from just, just my, my observation. It seems to me one of, the, one of the most frustrating things about work is that we take ourselves to work. We take our fears and our anxieties. We bring our anger to work. We're easily provoked. We bring, we bring our insecurities to work. We bring our jealousy to work. And so you may have a fantastic culture in your workplace, but you show up and, and work <laughs> is frustrating. And for some people, work becomes too big a deal. Work can become an idol. Some people care about their work more than they care about their health, their family, their God. Other people do not care about work enough. So we, we have these wide swings. Uh, some people are, are slothful. Instead of bringing integrity and bringing creativity and energy to work, they cut corners and they do the very least that, that they, they need to do and not get fired. And the people that experience their work uh, experience the, the fallout of that. Uh, tomorrow's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. One of the injustices that Dr. King spoke against was racial discrimination in the workplace. And uh, our laws have changed, but the human heart has not changed. Uh, my Jewish mother uh, tells about a time she was in, this is in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the 40s, and she saw a sign uh, above a restaurant that said, no dogs or Jews allowed. Imagine the culture of that workplace. Uh, in the past few years, sexual harassment in the workplace has been documented and brought to light. So the list could go on and on and on, right? So because of the fall, work is full of strife and frustration and evil. Creation, fall, but what about redemption? What is possible? What can be true of our work because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, the gospel transforms us and the gospel transforms our approach to work. And we're not going to spend much time on this today because the next four messages are about this point. It's about how Jesus can uh, transform us. And when we go to work, we're bringing someone very different to work. And it can transform the way we think about our work. The one passage we'll consider is in Colossians 3. And there Paul does a striking thing. He does a gutsy thing. He's talking to slaves, okay? And so in that day you had slaves and masters in the same church, okay? And so he would address them. And here he speaks to slaves. And slavery, you know, there was a variety of experiences in, in, in uh, the Roman Empire in the first century. Some slaves are basically part of the household and they were loved. Others were treated very cruelty, whatever the case. If you were a slave, you did not have your dream job, okay? You were not free. You were not free to do what you wanted. And so this is what Paul writes to slaves, and this is uh, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily 
as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so because they were servants of Christ, because they were his followers, they did not have the option of saying, if people don't treat me right, I don't have to treat them right. Uh, the, the New Testament ethic is, is not, I'm going to treat people how they treat me. So if they mistreat me, oh, watch out. I don't get, I don't get mad. I get even. That's not an option for Christians. Christians, the New Testament ethic is we treat others the way Christ has treated us. And so for them, this meant bringing things like forgiveness, sacrifice, generosity, and humility to their work. And so that's a, an example of the way redemption changes the way who we are and the way we approach our work. And so the next four weeks, we're going to cover these topics. Uh, next week, we'll be serving Christ through our work. Then we'll talk about the dignity of work, all kinds of work. Then we'll talk about work and spiritual formation, how our work can shape us and, tr and help transform us into the image of Christ. And then we'll talk about affirming the work of others. And so it's our desire that, that we would all develop deep convictions about our own work and about the work of those around us. But if I could, I'd like to give you a, a small assignment for next week, okay? Between this week and next week, I would like for you to ponder, how do you answer the question, so what do you do? What is your work? And how would you answer that question about your work in terms of its value? in terms of, of what the work you do actually accomplishes for God and the lives of other people, what, what does it actually accomplish? So for me, somebody said, I'd say, what do, you, what do you do? I'd say, well, I'm a pastor, so I preach sermons, I go to meetings, and I talk to people. How's that? Well, that's, that's pretty functional. A better answer might be, well, actually, what I try to do is I try to help people hear and believe the voice of God. Okay? There's a little more vision. So what do you do? Well, I clean houses. Well, here's maybe a better answer is, you know, I, I go into the spaces where people live, where people raise their families, and I try to bring order and beauty and health to those spaces. Okay? And so again, a little more vision, what you're, what you're really going for in your work. And so think about that between now and next week. Uh, restoration, uh, what does that mean? Well, Summer, I would say it this way. We will fulfill our creation mandate in the new heaven and the new earth. And so when Christ returns, we aren't told everything we want to know, but we're told all we need to know. One of the things that will happen, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, your salvation will pervade every part of your life. You will be spiritually transformed. The flesh will be gone. And your salvation will extend even to your body. You will be resurrected immortal. You will be given a body akin to Christ's resurrected body. In other words, sal salvation will permeate every part of our being. Since the fall not only affected humans, but affected all of creation, all of creation 
will be redeemed. God's plan of redemption involved fully restoring everything that was lost in the fall and then some. We talked about this last November. Uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It will, will come down. It's described in Revelation 21 and 22. And what John basically describes is that when the new heaven and new earth is established, it will be like the Garden of Eden. We're told the tree of life will be there. We're told that God will dwell among his people. Just like we walked in the cool of the evening with, with the, the first couple, he will dwell among his people. The main difference is that there will be no serpent and no possibility of sin. There not only won't be sin, there won't be a possibility of sin. But what will we do there? What will occupy our time for eternity? Well, I think we can safely conclude that the common stereotype of lounging on a cloud and eating bonbons or whatever, that, that's not the picture we get, okay? We're going to be in resurrected bodies, okay, like the body of Jesus. And when, when he appeared to the disciples, he did things like talk and walk and eat. We'll be able to do things. And we're not going to be in a cloud somewhere. The, the vision is of a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to be here, but we're going to be in an earth, uh, heaven and earth that is without sin. And so we aren't told exactly what we'll be doing, but what we are told is very intriguing. Some of you are going to find this more interesting than others, but there's this example in 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul is just aghast. You won't believe this, but what he heard about the church at Corinth, they were so inept at solving their own little disputes that they were actually taking each other to court, okay? They were going before the, the unbelieving courts and saying, you solve our problems. And so Paul is aghast at this. And one of the things he says <laughs> kind of off the cuff is, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? It's like, don't you know, we're going we're gonna to end up judging angels. And I think he's talking about the angels that have been given authority over the nations. Earlier he says, we will judge the world. Uh, but it could just be fallen angels. Whatever the case, Paul is saying that since they will judge greater spiritual beings in the next life, surely we should be able to sell, settle our petty disagreements in this life. And so the reality of the future is supposed to press back into the present. We have something similar said in the book of Revelation. We get this impression that we will have great responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, we sang it in the song. I don't know if you noticed it. I don't know if you believed it, but it's said over and over in the book of Revelation. Uh, and that's the chapter that, that records John wept because he didn't see anybody that was worthy to open the scroll, unfold the plan of God, break the seals and open the scroll. And uh, finally it said, John, stop weeping. The lamb who was slain, he is worthy. And so these heavenly creatures, human beings, they bowed down to the lamb and they sang a new song. This is Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is about Jesus, and verse 10 is about his people. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And then he says two things about these people who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And so we will serve God. We will minister to God. And they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. Very consistently, if you're a follower of Christ, you will reign with Jesus on the earth in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, You see it also in Revelation 20, verse 4. It speaks of believers being resurrected and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 22, 5 says that they will reign forever and ever. My understanding is that this is just simply a restatement of the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over the birds of the air, the beasts of the the land, and the, the, the fish of the seas. Rule over the rest of creation. We will reign. If you're meek, you're going to inherit the earth after all, okay? And so we will reign with Christ. And honestly, I'm just just beginning to formulate my thinking on this. I would never be dogmatic about things that aren't spelled out clearly in Scripture. But this vision of the redeemed, resurrected humanity fulfill our creation mandate. It fills me with awe, anticipation. That's a future I could get excited about. Can you imagine establishing cultures and creating spaces in the new heaven and new earth when there's no sin, no serpent, no flesh? There's nothing hindering the the will of God from being fully accomplished. And that's our destiny. That's our our heritage. Why are we told this? So we can argue about the details of the the end times? No, so that the future might press in onto the present. If that's what we will do, how should we live here and now? If that's what our work will entail, how should we enter in and see the, the will of God accomplished in us and through us in this world here and now? And surely, surely this includes our work. I hope you can be here next week. I hope you can be here in coming weeks and get a vision for our work. Heavenly Father, we ask you to uh, inflame our, our imaginations. We pray, God, that we might have a vision for who we have been called to be. God, we thank you that you've not left us idle, that you've not left us unproductive, but you give us desire, you give us abilities. God, I pray for us as a, as a church and all these different all these different uh, situations and stages of our lives. We pray, God, that we might be encouragement to one another and that we will grow in our understanding and our compassion and that uh, we might think rightly about our work. And, God, it's, uh, it's a, a huge part of our lives, and we want to honor you with what you've given us. And so we, we submit to you. We invite you to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.